Hi, I'm Lorna Meehan, and welcome to Rebel Heroines, a podcast celebrating the rebel heroines of the Greek myths through original audio drama, poetry, book and theatre reviews, and interviews with fellow fans and creatives. In this podcast, the stereotypical and somewhat toxic heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shaped their destinies. If you like your Greek myths seen through a feminist lens, enjoy creative adaptations of the classics such as the novels of Natalie Haynes and Madeline Miller, and agree that Hollywood hasn't made a decent movie set in antiquity since the original Clash of the Titans, this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Rebel Heroines, the podcast celebrating the rebel heroines of the Greek myths and the women who write about them through original audio drama, poetry, book and theatre reviews and interviews with authors and fellow fans. In this podcast, the stereotypical toxic heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shaped their destinies and champion the female authors bringing these nuanced women to life. This is a cheeky bonus episode where I'll be interviewing poet Kim Dane about their collection Dionysia, exploring the place where history and myth meet via Alexander the Great and his formidable sister and that wily old trickster Odysseus. Kim is a writer, facilitator and fortune teller and runs the Bragg CIC Press and Journal. Dionysia is published by Verve Poetry Press, who, incidentally, are publishing my debut poetry collection, Caterpillar Soup, in March next year. I'll keep you posted about that. Before the interview, I just wanted to plug some great Greek myth-inspired books I've been reading at the moment. House of Odysseus by Claire North, the second in her Songs of Penelope trilogy after Ithaca, is shaping up to be another fabulous exploration of the wonderfully nuanced Penelope. In this one, the action is narrated by Aphrodite, who has a lot of amusing moments of getting distracted from the action by a young soldier's biceps or Artemis's pert nipples. And why Aphrodite? because Helen of Troy has come to visit Ithaca with her volatile husband Menelaus because his nephew Orestes is rumoured to have gone mad after killing his mum and fled to Ithaca for protection and Menelaus is eager to claim his throne and be king of all Greece. And of course Aphrodite has a particular soft spot for Menelaus's wife Helen of Troy There's some lovely moments between Helen and Penelope where we see their fundamental differences, but also their similarities. One moment that stuck was where Aphrodite draws Penelope's attention to Helen stroking her own hair and enjoying the breeze on her skin, taking pleasure in her own body. Behold beauty, the goddess of love whispers to them. 
That was a gorgeous moment that says a lot about how this genre can feel very timeless and current. There's also a great moment where Menelaus realises it is in fact Penelope who is his true enemy, the real antagonist standing in the way of his goal. But because she's not obvious about it, he relishes the challenge of a worthy opponent. But I have a feeling Penelope's going to win this one. She has a great speech to Orestes about forgiveness and what it can and can't do. I love her in these novels and I look forward to the last instalment of this trilogy that is fast becoming my favourite Greek myth retelling so far. We'll have more bigging up of Penelope later. I've also recently read Bull Poppy Star by poet Sylvia V. Lindstedt. It's a sensual, lyrical journey through the forbidden love affair between Ariadne and her brother, Asterion, the Minotaur. At the heart of her darkness is a bull with the eyes of a star, is the opening line. And it goes on to say, You think his hunger could destroy a city, but you have not seen hers. All the cities of the world are not safe from it. This is a beautiful, sexy poem, and it explores two very different relationships between Ariadne and her brother. The one above ground, where they must obey the laws of men, and the one below, in the darkness of the labyrinth, where they make their own rules as they dance the bull dance and answer to no one. It's also an intriguing metaphor for a girl's journey into womanhood through exploring the power of her sexuality. Another quote. For a woman's hunger is stronger even than a man's, and the sparks made from mortal bodies can sear the ground open, can rearrange the weft of time, can change the soul, and so the story of the world. I love this portrayal of Ariadne for the same reason I love Zenobia Neal's portrayal of her in Ariadne Unraveled, which I talked about in the last episode. I love the way she's presented as a powerful priestess, a shamelessly sexual woman who chooses lovers worthy of her. Gods and the laws of men be damned. Bull Poppy Star isn't in circulation through the usual channels where you buy books, but I got in touch with the publishers, Hedgespoken Press, and they do still have some copies. So if you're an Ariadne Minotaur poetry fan, do snap one up. Sylvia also has some other Greek myth-inspired titles, so check her out. I'll put all the links in the show notes. So, keeping on this theme of poetry... Welcome, Kim. Thank you for coming on the podcast. No worries. It's it's lovely to be here. I was delighted to be invited. Wonderful. So I've just finished reading your poetry collection, Dionysia, published by Verve Poetry Press, and it focuses on Alexander the Great and Odysseus. And I wanted to ask for my first question, what it was about these two classical figures that inspired you? And was poetry always your first choice of medium for writing about them? So what drew me towards Alexander and Odysseus was really the flexibility that they hold as characters. So for Alexander, I was very, very fascinated by the fact that he killed his historian, Callisthene. And what we get then is a kind of mattering and fragmentation in the historic record. And while it's not strictly canon to Alexander, I kind of see that as the moment that myth crept in. 
Because what you lose with the death of a court historian is that kind of official fact and official record. And Alexander then springs up everywhere and becomes a little bit of everything to everyone. So there's a mosaic of him in a church in Darlington, for instance, tiny little town in, near Teesside. There are Ethiopian Alexander romances where he appears almost proto-Christian and speaks to the Christian God. He's in some Jewish legends, particular afterlife in some Arabic legends as well, where he's Al-Iskander, Al being a common kind of prefix to an Arabic name. So he takes on all of these afterlives. And I found that totally fascinating. And Odysseus, while maybe not as flexible and also kind of less, I was going to say less real to an Odysseus, is a little bit more into the realm of myth. But there is something very trickster figure about Odysseus, which gives us this mercurial kind of flow to the character. And I'm obsessed with trickster figures. I think they're so interesting, the way that their kind of revelry and their refusal to stick to the rules of the society that they're in fragments and breaks culture and kind of creates culture as well and creates new ways of seeing and new ways of being. But also sometimes they're just nasty and horrible and there's a great tension in them. So I, I've always been drawn to Odysseus for that, for that kind of intellect, that kind of planning and also the way it's kind of mirrored in Penelope. So yeah, great interest in those particular figures. And then poetry. I think poetry was my first medium for writing about them and kind of my first choice because I think poetry is quite mercurial and quite fragmented. So it gives us a lot of space to play. And I think that's something that is really nicely reflected in these characters. So I was thinking about maybe writing something about, about Alexander and poetry was kind of the obvious choice. And I've been working on this sequence about Odysseus for several years. And they take a lot from Greek theatre as well. I think that's kind of clear. That's also where Dionysia comes from because it's the Greek theatre festival. But I think there's a lot of overlap between poetry and theatre. And it was nice to kind of take some tools from theatre without having to actually write a play that would make sense. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, that whole thing about myth and history kind of overlapping and speaking to each other really came through. And yeah, it did seem like poetry was the perfect vehicle for it. And the, the fact that you have like a, a chorus in there as well, that whole sort of theme of who gets to tell the truth and yeah, whose eyes are we seeing them through and how that changes things up was was really interesting. I liked in the Alexander section that the voice of his sister, Thessaloniki, I liked that she kind of kept creeping in and kind of dominating the action and taking over. And I didn't know that there was this legend about Alexander, the great sister, like throwing herself off a cliff out of grief and turning into a mermaid. Like, wow, like that's just, that's like, you know, proper history going into myth there, isn't it? Yeah, I like this idea that she kind of kept coming in to kind of almost steal the narrative away. Like I like the quote about the chorus saying, if we had our way, she wouldn't be in this bit, but where history fails, myth grows. Did you always want to write about his sister or did she kind of creep in and take over when you were writing? It was a little bit of both. So I love the the quote that, that she reportedly says. So this is, so Thessaloniki is very much a, a folk legend, 
Um, she doesn't even appear in the medieval romances. So she's been attested to in various little places. But yeah, there's a she's a, she's a folk legend that won't quite go away. And I like that about her. But she supposedly asks sailors, is Alexander the king alive? And she's immortal. And she's asking this hundreds and hundreds of years after he died. And you have to say, Alexander lives and reigns and conquers the world. Otherwise, if you say, no, he died hundreds of years ago, what are you on about? She destroys, she turns into a terrifying Gorgon and pulls the ship down. Wow. And I thought about how anger and grief could last for centuries. And I thought about the kind of person that you'd have to be to hold on in that way. And I kind of, I really understood her. I felt in a way. And the moment I started thinking about her, I couldn't really stop. So I think I open with a section about how she swims around the poem like a goldfish in a bowl. I put the sister in this because I want the impossible, because grief makes mad women of us. Because once she arrived, she wouldn't leave and swims in this poem like a goldfish in a bowl. So it, it just, she just wouldn't go. And I found that the emotional sensor that I was lacking in the poems originally was in Thessaloniki. And that Alexander himself was almost too mercurial, too washed into myth, too much of everybody's everything. To have anything of himself really left when I was looking for an emotional centre to write from. And he doesn't really have an emotional centre that I, I personally connect with. I connect with some of his aspects as, a, as maybe as a trickster or somebody on a quest to find the water of life or rescuing or like capturing griffins to try and get to heaven and kind of operating in this mad fairyland. I love that. But when you think about Alexander as a historic figure, as a, as a king and a conqueror, it, it doesn't really hold any appeal for me as a writer because I'm not a kind of big men of history kind of gal. I don't find like, I don't have anything interesting to say about it as a concept. But I do have something interesting to say about a sister who might not even be a sister of somebody half lost into myth, reaching for him, being remade, being a monster, being all of these different things. And uh, Thessaloniki's Lament was actually the last poem I wrote for the sequence, which is her big kind of F.U. sequence. And that was where I really kind of the poems came together and I knew that they were starting to work. It's funny, I always say it's about Alexander, but really it's about Thessaloniki, I think. I think that poem, like Thessaloniki's Lament, like was really, by the time I got to that, oh, this is the beating heart of it. This is, again, kind of shows you, I think, the humanity of this huge historical mythical figure, again, without kind of trying to unpack him because he's too big you know you really see it through through her voice how she's sort of maybe wrapped up in the myth of him as well but you know if she knew him as a human too there was lots of lovely nuances going on there in the Odysseus sequence Odysseus and Penelope think are, are in bed and she sort of hypothetically asks him how he would kill her and you know like, so could you really just kill someone he's like yeah sure like how would you kill me and he tells her he'd hang her and then I like the fact that when she tells him how she'd kill him she whispers it in his ear and he turns the color of blanched almonds and I love the fact that we don't get to know what she said it's a really nice nod to Penelope as this woman who's got a lot of 
depth and mystery and cunning, but just kind of gets, you know, pushed aside to make way for Odysseus. It was a, a really lovely moment of Penelope just kind of yeah, shocking him, which I liked. And I'm curious to know, did you have something in mind that she was going to say that we were going to hear? Or was it a mystery to you as well, like how Penelope would kill Odysseus? I don't think I ever had anything specific in mind, but I had his reaction in mind. Mm. And I knew whatever it was would be so devious. I never stand any chance of being caught. It would be terrible because Odysseus in that kind of man's world is like, oh, and it was meant to reflect the the killing of the of the maids that are hanging around the suitors. Yes. He hangs the maid, which is one of the more unforgivable things Odysseus does in his like large collection of unforgivable things. Yeah, absolutely, but, yeah. <laughs> and I like seeing them as a matched pair of mm. two people that are very similar. But I think when it comes down to it, it, it seems like Penelope could have the upper hand over Odysseus and obviously that is that is an interpretation within the myth people have gone in very many different directions with it I kind of I think the emotional undertones in the Odysseus sequence are a lot softer than a lot of writers kind of go with for Odysseus and Penelope and Diomedes but the epic itself spoke to me about the when I was kind of reading the Odyssey and indeed the Iliad about the way that sometimes you find somebody exceptional who might also do terrible things but Mm. is exceptional for you and you will hold on to them no matter what and I think that there's something in that holding on and not letting go that is also in my Alexander sequence. And so they're both, the, the emotional undercurrent is that holding on, which I think is a little bit interesting. But yeah, I, I love Penelope and I think that she is deeply underrated. I also think that there's nothing wrong equally with interpreting her as somebody who loved somebody's wit so much they were willing to wait for 20 years to see that again like you know I don't think that's necessarily problematic and I think often you get this image of Odysseus swanning around after the Trojan War doing whatever he wants which I I didn't get when I read the Odyssey I remember being in in class and them going up um, this was during my A-levels when I first kind of was introduced to the Odyssey and everyone was going oh look at him just doing whatever he wants poor Penelope's off there he's off with Calypso and I thought is no one else seeing this as a, like a trauma narrative he's like it, it reads to me very much as unwilling sexual assault you know there is other stuff going on and obviously we can't necessarily put these ethics on we're interpreting something that is written so long ago and a lot of the ways that we think about the world have changed so much in mm. that just as a, as a Greek double standard, Greek men could do what they could be unfaithful. And it wasn't seen as being unfaithful. It was just seen as being a man. Meanwhile, if a woman was unfaithful, that was a problem. <laughs> so yeah. we have, it's a funny thing to try and come back as a modern writer and move through it. But I think that's a very, very long way of saying that I kind of love Odysseus and Penelope. And I think that they're a great couple to write because they just have that they're, they're two people who love each other very deeply for their wit in my interpretation this time but you then get that beautiful kind of back and forth with them <laughs> yeah i i love penelope too i think she's probably one of my favorite heroines like women of greek myth because you know she's not a goddess she's not 
stunningly beautiful like Helen of Troy you know she she doesn't have this same clout this same myth around her she's very much to me the the wife who's kind of stuck in the the domestic realm who has to keep the kingdom running who has to look after everyone who you know has has this son who's just horrible to her who has all these men around that she has to appease you know and it's her world to me is very much the daily drudge of just getting through the day you know in on this island that she has to run basically without the safety of of a man and i think there's there's so much to her that's relatable in terms of the modern world like i think there's a lot of Penelope's secretly running the world but she also has desire and obvious love for this man that she pretty much never never gets to spend much time with through the real pivotal moments in her life you know the fact that they're so connected but yet he's kind of a stranger at the same time it's fascinating there's so much to her and I just really loved that moment where he she says something to him that shocks him so deeply but you know that's up to us what she might have said and that was a really lovely moment of Penelope just being seen but still being a mystery and the fact that yeah she still has that trickster quality that she's a good match for him that was that was a lovely moment something else that I really liked about the Odysseus sequence was that it was framed as a tarot reading and when I read that you're also a fortune teller I was wondering do you often blend like your fortune telling experiences into your writing my fortune telling kind of tarot card reading I I see very much as an exercise in storytelling um Mm. I'm really interested in Italo Calvino's The Castle of Cross Destinies which is a set of stories that he told through tarot cards people in a castle and then in an inn not being able to speak but telling their stories through these images and I think that's kind of one of the texts that I came to when I was thinking about how do we read cards? What does it mean to read these stories out of these images? How do we make them move? How do we make them dynamic? And so when I came to write the Odysseus sequence, I had this vague idea of Odysseus at a house party getting his cards read and this sort of unreality around it. I also had some joke in my head that never quite made it into the manuscript which was if we describe somebody as a man of many ways now you'd be like oh he goes both ways like he's he's bisexual (laughs) and I never quite fit that in but that was kind of playing on my mind when I was writing about it all but as kind of circle background the question I've used tarot cards before I used them a little bit in uh, Primer's volume six. I was one of the selected writers for that. couple of poems that referenced tarot. I find that they can be really useful for blocking off sequences or giving kind of overarching themes. I try to not be too heavy handed with them because sometimes you can just put down a big image and a big image is not always a good replacement for meaning or for, for taking your your reader through the journey so I'm I'm very much when I use tarot I'm trying to think about how to make it work really really hard in the places where I put it and I, I'm thinking about that in my fortune telling as well you've got to make the cards work really hard because you're you're telling a story from nine images or so I've got a few tarot decks I've mostly got oracle cards and I've got a Greek mythology oracle card set I think it's called the mythical oracle and it's Carissa Malado I think it is and 
when I was kind of doing like different episodes about different rebel heroines, different gods and men and stuff, I found myself like going back to those cards and incorporating these very like succinct messages about you know what what this mythological figure can like represent in you know the kind of spiritual realm and it it felt like a nice way to kind of bring that into discussing them as well in terms of the podcast because there's like you say there's that whole sense of like symbology and imagery that I think tarot and oracle cards can really yeah like make it concise and also give you again like multiple meanings (laughs) depending on who you're reading for so yeah it's it was just a, f- a fascinating link up that I uh, really resonated with me like oh I like that I like and again like the whole thing of the Odysseus as the trickster as well and this sense of playing games and multiple kind of interpretations that we have of these mythological figures based on their their wily characteristics you know that um everyone's kind of got a different opinion about them and that's something that they utilize as well yeah Greek mythologies had like a big resurgence over the years. And yeah, just wanted to ask, like, why do you think these characters continue to captivate us, you know, after after all this time? And also, if there's any other characters in Greek mythology that maybe would want to write about in the future that you haven't explored yet? I think that one of the reasons they still captivate us so much is that there's an extraordinary amount of humanity in these ancient epics. and. I think that one of the memories which really was striking for me um, and is like a core memory of interacting with the classics, I guess, was when I was reading a bit of the Odyssey and I realised that it was funny and it was still (laughs) funny Mm. now. And I thought, oh, my God, it's not to flatten culture and stories into one monomyth or people into one type, but there is a thread of humanity going through the epics that also goes through a lot a lot of myth in general i find like the epic of gilgamesh i also find the same way greek myth is particularly accessible by virtue of it kind of filtering through in the renaissance when we were able to translate the greek obviously having so much of of roman history around us which means that we almost that we have that immediate link to greece here in the the uk and obviously in America to a lesser extent because they're so influenced by Europe. Mm. So I, I think that's almost the the boring answer that's like that Greek culture has been a historical export for centuries, which means that it's always been a very accessible set of myths, which is sometimes to the exclusion of Greek writers writing about Greek myths, actually, mm. because a lot of the local folkloric versions, there's a lot of diverging versions of myths, not just the ones that were written down. And I think myth is... I see myth very, very, very much as a living thing. And that means there's no original myth. And so I think often, particularly in publishing and in the commercialization of kind of Greek myth, we sometimes go, well, that's not an original myth or that's not how it happened. And there's no such thing as how it happened. Each telling begins it anew in its own way. So this is equally having, having written about Greek myth, having studied classical civilizations at university. I think that there's just, we have such an amazing backlog. We have the works of Euripides and Aeschylus and Homer and loads of these amazing writers that are still extant, which is just incredible. And going back to them, we discover so much about what is universal. Mm. So I just think that's really interesting. I don't know if I want to go back and write about Greek myth or if I want to change track into into British folklore, into the trickster figures we have here. 
Mm. I think trickster figures are my mode. There are so many fascinating figures. I'm thinking of shapeshifters like Proteus. I love Thessaloniki, although I don't think I have anything more to say about her. <laughs> Maybe I can find some some other angry women in I mean there's certainly lots of angry women in Plenty. they're they're very important uh, <laughs> but yeah. yeah Cassandra Cassandra is a, is a huge obsession particularly when one's interested in fortune telling and things like yeah, that absolutely but yeah. whether or not I've got anything sometimes you can really love figures from myth but know that you don't necessarily have a, anything to say or an angle <laughs> or a or a way into them yet so I don't have any plans but that's not to say it's it's never going to happen either way i look forward to reading future stuff from you and before we go um, is there anything that you'd like to read from dionysia so this is the opening sequence or the first poem in the collection alexandros or the death of the historian myth making for dummies fragment incomplete I put the sister in this because I want the impossible, because grief makes mad women of us. Because once she arrived, she wouldn't leave and swims in this poem like a goldfish in a bowl. Here she is now, scaled to her belly, soft webby hands, through alcoholic Greek waters swim his sister. 1. Thessaloniki Is Alexander the king alive? Yes, he lives and reigns and conquers the world. Chorus if we tell her the truth, she'll split us clean in two. If she catches us with our lying faces on, best not to think of it. Instead, let's tell her a story. He lives, reigns, conquers, fucks, whatever, paints his eyebrows on in the morning, drinks coffee with the sultan, lies drunk in the gutter. A man like that dead? Not likely, sister. He stepped out for a cigarette. He'd write, but the ink runs in seawater like blood. He's busy. Alexandria via Teesside via the kingdom of heaven. Lunch with a giant spider and the queen of the Amazon. Besides, stamps are expensive. He has to miss you, irreplaceable sister. Another child can be made, another wife or lover procured. He'll never have another Thessaloniki. Not with your shark's smile, your faint whiff of kippers. Of course, no brother of yours could ever grow back. Was it you who told him how to do it? Miss sister, sea maid, when did Alexander learn the trick? When was death undone? I just love that line about besides stamps are expensive. All these big, like elaborate things. Oh, he's having dinner with the Queen of the Amazons, a giant spider. Like, and besides, stamps are expensive. Just that little detail of modern life is wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. I was going to also read Thessaloniki's lament since we've spoken so much about how much we like her. So this is her grieving over Alexander. Thessaloniki's lament. Bitch, unsister me. When a wave rises in fury and froth and falls, that's me. Every single one is me. I'll bite you. The story returns him only in the instant of its telling. There's no one left for me to sister. I want to be a pearl unmade. All my glimmering suck to sand. Put me in a fish tank. I'll do tricks and maul the seal trainers and ask if anyone could please tell me where my fucking brother is. Maybe I'd better be stuffed like a prize cat. You could tell everyone how I thrashed and bled, how I begged at the end. I'm forever. I could watch you from a jar of formaldehyde. I don't even own this grief. It's every drop of salt. Tell me that he loves me. 
that the land needs to see like a kiss, that it is not being washed away. I love that directness of, I'll bite you. you I'm not some weeping heroine, you know, I'll bite you. That whole thing about I am forever, real image of this unending grief, really potent. Thank you. So tell us where we can get your book and maybe where we can see you reading from it, if you've got any um, gigs coming up. So my book is available from the Poetry Press website, as well as various independent retailers. I think it's also available on Waterstones, etc. Any good bookshop. <laughs> Great. Um, and you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, etc. All the socials under Shortest Witch. That's like a very small witch. Um, but I'm also the only Kim Dean on the internet. That's K-Y-M-D-E-Y-N. And I will be reading at More Song in Bradford on January 17th, uh, which is the only thing I've got in my calendar for now, but I might be organising some stuff. But that's the main one. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and getting more in-depth with your collection. It, yeah, it's been great to just kind of do something a bit different, which is what I like to do with the bonus episodes where I kind of take a slightly different angle. And it's been great to learn about a historical rebel heroine who's also very mythical as well you know and and yeah it's been great to bring like alexander into the discussion as well because again he's another historical figure from greek myth who just has almost this whole other mythology around him that you wonder you know where does history end and the myth begin you know it's, it's been wonderful to talk about those characters as well as good old odysseus and the fabulous <laughs> penelope yeah. so thank you very much and good luck with your future endeavors and i look forward to reading future books from you greek mythology based or otherwise <laughs> thank you thank you thank you very much it's been great to, to be on the podcast thanks so much for listening feel free to like subscribe to my youtube channel you can find me under lorna mehan or rebel heroines podcast if you'd like to get in touch send me any pre-recorded poetry or drama on theme please email me at lornaemehan at gmail.com please share with anyone who might be interested and i'll be back soon with episode 10 all about the forgotten goddess the big reveal who is lorna's favorite goddess the answer is coming and also look out for another bonus episode interview with Iwana Papavopulu whose new novel Winter Harvest focuses on Demeter and finally gives this mighty goddess the origin story she deserves watch this space